Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. Christendom is dead. Christendom is no longer a part of our world. Now, that's Christendom, not Christianity. We need to make a difference in our understanding of what we're talking about here. Uh, Christendom is actually uh, a contraction of two words, uh, Christ and dominion. And that really, Christendom was not a part of the early church. In fact, Christendom really didn't exist for the first three centuries of the church. What happened in the third century? Constantine happened. And Constantine, for the first time, declared Christianity to be the official religion of the Roman Empire, which started an alliance between the church and government that gave power to the church in a way that was never intended. But power attracts, and people grew to it, and the church began to shift and to change, and the whole nature of Christendom emerged where the church and its uh, uh, leadership became uh, alliances, if you will, with the power structures of the day. And, uh, And immediately, problems started happening. Now, there were always tensions within the church, even in the first three years, in the first three centuries, as they're learning how to get along. And, and Paul's cry, uh, in, especially we see it in his epistles, is for unity. But we even see that back in Jesus' day. Love each other. Uh, uh, serve one another. Sacrifice for one another. My people will be known by their love for one another. And the idea was that uh, we would draw people into a relationship with Jesus Christ that would result in a transformation of their lives. And as individuals were transformed, yes, societies would be transformed. But when government got involved, there was a subtle shift that occurred. And with that subtle shift came power. And with that power came even greater division. And we began to see Christianity fragment. I mean, one of the earliest fragmentations was when they decided that uh, uh, the the Coptic church in Egypt really didn't get, uh, uh, they didn't have a right theology, so we're going to just cut them off and separate them out. They're no longer part of the true church. I know, I'm sorry, Pastor John. It was terrible. We're so glad that you're back in the fold. But then you could even go into the, into the separation between the East and the West, uh, the Orthodox and the, and, the, and the Catholic Church that happened in the 10th century. Or you could talk about the division that happened in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. And, and it, with, with each one of those divisions, we see Christendom running the show and Christianity be declining as it becomes more of a political statement, a cultural statement, than a true religious foundation. And of course, in America, America was established uh, as a a Christian nation. It was established as a Protestant Christian nation. 
In fact, the writers of the Declaration said that our Constitution is written for a religious people, and when they said religious, basically they meant Christian, for a Christian people, and is wholly inadequate to govern any other kind. And that's what our nation was built on. But by the early 20th century, there, there came a push for, at that point, which was basically a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant uh, domination of the, of the state to be more inclusive, to bring in the, uh, 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 the Jews and the Catholics for greater participation. And it was in the earliest, early 20th century that we shifted away from being uh, a nation founded on Christian principles to being a nation that was found on Judeo-Christian principles. Christendom begins to weaken a little bit. And then in the, uh, in, in the, in the, in the 1960s, we see another uh, event happen in the country that further weakens the church as an institution as people begin to challenge authority by and large, across the board. And there are any number of reasons for that, and we could unpack that at, a, at another time. But basically what happened in the 60s is that the church ceased to be the custodian of the moral framework of our nation. And there was a push to question all authority. Now, also in the, in the 60s, another thing that happened in the 60s was a, a radical change in the immigration laws of, uh, of North America, and uh, uh, immigrants started coming in from other parts of the, of the world that did not share the, the Judeo-Christian heritage. I mean, when uh, uh, there, there was a time where if you wanted to know anything about Muslims, uh, uh, Hindus, or uh, uh, or, or the like, you would have to go to a book and you could read about it. Not anymore. You can just go down the street and your neighbor is a, uh, is a, is a practicing Muslim or a, or a Hindu or a Buddhist. So that further erodes this idea that, 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 that Christendom is, is in control of what's going on uh, in the world and in the nation. And with each of these steps, we see a decline in the influence of the church within the culture. And then add to that the rapid rise of all kinds of different spiritual experiences that a person can have. With all the new age and with all the influx of the Eastern religions and, and the shift in America from an agrarian community to a consumer community. Well, we now have choices for everything that uh, under the sun. We have choices in which religion we're going to follow. We have choices in which uh, uh, moral standards we're going to follow. In fact, why don't we just allow people to make up their own moral choices? And with each of these events, we see the influence and the, and the, and the power of the church eroding. The question is, should the church ever have had that kind of power? To begin with. And when they did have it, did they wield it well? Did they use it properly? Well, that again is a question for another day. But as we look at the world today, as we look at the United States, 
And we realize that Christendom, as a combination of Christianity and power and dominion, has ebbed and flowed away as we watch the institutional churches begin to decline, it's easy to wonder, has God rejected his people? Has God walked away from those who claim to be Christian, but in fact were Christian in name only? Well, interestingly enough, that's the similar question that Paul asks of the Jews in the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. We're in the middle of this parenthetical section in Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where Paul is struggling with uh, the Jews who have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And last week, we looked at, uh, we, we looked at the idea that Uh, that it is our responsibility to bring the good news to people. It is not our responsibility how they respond to that good news. Our job is to proclaim it. It is the job of the Holy Spirit to convict the individual. And the Jews have had plenty of time, plenty of opportunity to hear that good news The voice has gone out into all the world. And then the questions that Paul asked at the end of chapter 10, uh, did did Israel not understand? No, they understood. Isaiah says boldly, "I, I, I was found by those who did not seek me, revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But but concerning Israel, he said, all day long I've held up my hand to a disobedient and obstinate people. The good news was present, but they did not respond to it. And so in the 11th chapter, Paul asks this question. I ask then, chapter 11, verse 1, did God reject his people? By no means, Paul says. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul himself is a Jew. He is from the nation of Israel. Has God rejected his people? Paul says, no, I'm a living example that there are Jews within the church, Jews who have identified Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have, have accepted him as a fulfillment of the promise that was given to the people. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know the scripture? What the scripture says in the passage about Elijah how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. Woe is me. Now, if you'll remember that story from the Old Testament, uh, uh, Elijah had called all the prophets of Baal up to Mount Carmel and said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to set up a test here to see who is the real God and who is not. And so you set up your altar over here and your sacrifice, and I'll set one up over here. And so they set up the sacrifices over here, and he says, okay, call upon, call upon your God to receive the sacrifice. And they're dancing around, and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and, and, and Elijah is taunting them. What's the matter? You need, maybe you need to speak a little louder. Maybe, maybe your God is deaf. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's, maybe he's gone to the bathroom. I mean, he's just saying all these things to him. And, you know, and, they're, they're, and they're, they're just doing all kinds of things until they are totally and completely exhausted. And he says, okay, my turn. 
He says, Lord of heaven, receive this offering. And literally fire comes down out of the heavens and consumes the offering that Elijah had set up. And then it consumes the offering that they had set up for the nation, of, uh, for the God of Baal. And, uh, and, and, uh, and then Elijah had all the uh, prophets of Baal uh, killed. He says, are there any other questions? Who is the true God? When Jezebel, who was a follower of Baal, heard about it, and she was married to the king at that time, the king, the king of Israel, she said, oh, I'm going to uh, I'm gonna get that Elijah. I'm going to get him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take care of him. And she sends a posse after him, and that's when he takes off running. I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, the guy has just called down fire from heaven, and he's running from a woman uh, who says that she's going to kill him. And, and he finds himself uh, uh, back in the desert, back in the place where Moses received the Ten Commandments. And he's having this little pity party. Oh, Lord, everybody hates me. Nobody loves me. I'm going to go eat worms. I'm all by myself. And God comes back and says, I have reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too, Paul says, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. God said to Elijah at that time, no, you are not alone. You are never alone. God will never allow himself to be without a witness. There were 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, a remnant of the nation of Israel. And oh my gosh, this is not the first time that we, that, that we hear about, uh, about remnants. I mean, half of the prophets in the Old Testament talked about remnants, that there would always be a remnant. Now, What does that tell us? It tells us that that corporate inclusion, God's saying to Israel, you are my chosen people. I choose you. Corporate inclusion, my chosen people, does not absolve personal responsibility. Corporate inclusion, you are my chosen people, that doesn't mean that you get a free pass. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want to do. It doesn't mean that you have no accountability to me or to one another. It never meant that. It never meant that. And so what we see happening in the nation of Israel over the years is people getting content. People getting too comfortable. People beginning to forget who brought them to the party. And when you forget who brings you to the party, you begin to cultivate a spirit of ingratitude. Look what what he goes on to say here in this 11th chapter. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, (coughs) grace would no longer be grace. Do you remember we talked about the good news last week? And what is that good news? The good news, the good news is that Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh to teach us how to live with one another that we might thrive within the moral framework that God provides for us. That he came and he died on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. 
so that we can be reconciled with God. And that on the third day, He rose from the grave. And the same power that raised Jesus back to life is available to us that we might live transformed lives, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That Jesus ascended into the heavens where he reigns as sovereign over all of creation. And the day is going to come, the day is going to come when Jesus is going to return and set up his eternal kingdom right here on earth. That's the good news. That's the good news. The only challenge is that before you get the good news, you have to accept the bad news. Before you can accept and rejoice in the good news, you've got to understand and accept the bad news. So then, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What's the bad news, folks? The bad news is that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot do it on our own. And that's what Israel needed to learn. And they learned it over and over and over again. God would bring them to the, to the, to the foot of the mountain and, and pour blessings out upon them. And in no time at all, they were turning away and sliding back down into the muck and the mire. Down there in that pit of the muck and the mire of their own self-pity and, 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 and self-indulgent, they would recognize their state and they would cry out to God and they would say, Lord, please forgive us. We have sinned. And the Lord would hear their prayers and he would reach down and he would heal their land and he would restore them. Never in the history of Israel were they ever able to do it by themselves. They needed God's grace in their lives. The bad news that we all need to really understand is that we cannot do it by ourselves. We need help. I love that poster of a turtle sitting on top of a fence post. And the, and the copy read, uh, I didn't get here by myself. You ever seen a turtle climb a fence post? Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself today, if you are experiencing God's blessings, you are experience God, experiencing God's blessings because of his grace, because of his mercy. We don't get what we deserve. We get forgiveness, we get grace, we get mercy because of who God is. But corporate inclusion doesn't absolve us of personal responsibility. What then? Paul goes on to ask. What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain. But the elect did. Others were hardened, as it was written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. That's a tough one for us to wrap our minds around. It almost seems to be saying that God gives us just enough rope to hang ourselves. 
That if we start cultivating and, 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 and nurturing a spirit of ingratitude with, with, within our hearts, that we're going to find ourselves drifting away from God. And as we drift away from God, our hearts become callous. I have calluses on my fingers from playing uh, guitar. And, uh, and, and I love them, and they're a good thing because after I play, my fingers don't hurt. That's a good place to have calluses. Kimberly agrees with me. Calluses on the heart, not so much. And the calluses that form on our hearts form through acts of disobedience. The first time that we are disobedient and we know it, we're kind of you know, making sure that we're not going to get zapped by lightning. You know, that because uh, we know, we know in our hearts. And the second time we think, well, whew, you know, dodged a bullet on that one. And so the next time we're, we're disobedient, you know, we're, we're, a, little, we're a little less uh, uh, worried about it. And we start to think that God doesn't care how we live our lives. That, it, it, that, it, that it's really okay. Uh, 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 and so what happens is that each time we are disobedient, uh, we're putting another layer of callousness on our hearts. Uh, so could you say that that, is a, that that kind of callousing is a spirit of stupor that God puts upon people who refuse to receive the good news that he offers? And David says in verse 9, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a, and a retribu- retribution for them. And may their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs bent over forever. May their tables become a stumbling block. Life was good. And you, you, ever, you ever notice how when something bad happens, the, uh, the, the atheists and the agnostics seem to come out of the woodwork and say, oh, where's God now? If there's a God, why is all this calamity happening? I can't believe that you would have faith in a God that would allow this to happen. Those are good questions, and we can talk and we can, we can, uh, uh, we can dialogue about those questions. But when I hear questions like that, I, I think of Job. I mean, if you remember the, 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 the story of Job, I mean, this was a man who had, who had tremendous wealth and blessings, and, uh, and God allowed Satan to take it all away. And he lost everything, and he was miserable. And his, and his wife comes up to him and says, I can't believe that you're holding on to your integrity after all this has happened to you. Why don't you just curse God and die? And he says to her, you got to be kidding me, woman. How, how can we accept good things from the Lord and, and, and not the bad? When things are going well, How many people really stop and say, things are really going well today. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings that you give to me. This is is really great. I recognize that you have given me opportunity. You have given me talent. You have given me an environment in which I can thrive. This is really great stuff. Thank you, Lord. You know, if there was more of that, the church, I think, would be a little stronger. But what happens is that we get comfortable. What happens is we begin to relax. What happens is we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we should. 
What happens is we recognize that we're talented people and that we think that we get where we got by ourselves and our own hard work. Now, that's not to mitigate against the importance of hard work. I think that, that work is meaningful. I think that God has created us for work. That's all a good thing. But to recognize and to remember that it is God who gives us those opportunities, who gives us those abilities, and that when we work, we have opportunity to honor and glorify God in everything that we do. And at the end of the day, we say, thank you, Lord, for grace and mercy that is undeserved. You know, it's been said that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a microcosm of the church today. As Israel went, so goes the church. And isn't it interesting that we see those cycles repeat themselves in the life of the church, just like they were in the nation of Israel. And so we come to the point where we recognize that Christendom is dead. We come to the point where we, where we grieve that we don't have the influence in our culture that we once had. And we begin to think that God has abandoned us, that he, is, that he has rejected his people. And, I, and I'm here to tell you today that just as in the days of Elijah, God will never leave himself without a witness. There will always be 7,000 who will not bow the knee to, to, to modern culture or fill in the blank, whatever it is that you want to put in there, that will always be true to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever, ever become complacent in your faith. And don't ever think that you are a Christian because you live in the United States or because your grandparents were believers or because your parents were believers. And that you can ride on those coattails. Don't ever let comfort become a stumbling block. Don't let the table become a stumbling block. The challenges are real. But the challenges for us are not to try to regain that which was lost in Christendom. But to draw people back in to a serious relationship with Christ. Recognizing the bad news, we cannot do it alone. Accepting and celebrating the good news that God has made a way through Jesus Christ. That we might thrive in his kingdom, in his economy. Remembering who he has created us to be. And the one through whom has brought reconciliation between us and our creator. This table. This table is a stumbling block to some, but hopefully not to us. This is a table that reminds us of the good news, of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And as I have said many, many times, you don't need to be a member of a specific community to partake in this sacrament. You don't partake in this sacrament because you're such a good person. You haven't earned an invitation to this table. You cannot buy an invitation to this table. And yet all are invited to this table. All are invited to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins 
And we who have been forgiven take and eat these elements in remembrance of him. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat, all of you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather either here or at home, on the lawn, wherever we may be, to recognize, Lord, both the bad news and the good news. And the knowledge, Lord, that yes, we who call ourselves Christians are your chosen people, but that does not absolve us of personal responsibility to live into your kingdom that we might thrive. Help us, Lord, to examine our own lives at this very, very moment that we might identify anything that separates us from your grace, either thought or deed, and we confess those sins to you this morning. And we ask for your forgiveness granted to us through the body of our Lord and Savior given for us. We thank you and we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of our Lord, given for you and me, take and eat all of you. In a similar manner, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant poured out in my blood. Take and drink all of you. And know that I will not partake of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. This cup is service and sacrifice. And for us, it is salvation. Pray with me. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. Christendom is dead. And you might ask, well, what was wrong with Christendom? What was wrong with uniting Christ and dominion? Well, as Christendom rise, rose, conversion and formation declined because people were Christians by virtue of citizenship, birth, residence. It was more social rather than a choice or a conscious commitment. With the rise of Christendom, Christianity no longer found its primary embodiment in congregations, but in territories and nations. With the rise of Christendom, mission was not an inherent characteristic of every congregation that, uh, that belonged, every, every congregation belonged to all of its members. Rather, mission was something done by specially designated missionaries in territories and nations that were not yet Christian. As Christendom rose, the purpose of the church was to provide religious services to the local population. As Christendom rose, ministry of the church increasingly was performed and belonged to religious professionals. 
As Christendom rose, society and faith overlapped to such an extent that being a good Christian and being a good citizen were equivalent, and each defined the other. So you see, the decline of Christendom is not necessarily a bad thing. Because with the decline of Christendom, we can begin to see a rise in Christianity, in authentic faith, in conversion, in transformation that allows us to live as citizens within the kingdom of God in ways that thrive. And as our lives thrive according to God's plan, people will ask. And when people ask, we need to be ready to give an answer to anyone for the hope that exists within us. That, my friends, is the good news. God has not abandoned his people. God is as faithful today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. Let us remember that being part of God's family does not give us a free pass, but draws us into a deeper commitment to live with Jesus Christ and be transformed by his spirit so that we can become more and more like him. That's the good news that our world needs to hear. We gather to worship, to celebrate communion, and we go forth or we shelter in place, depending on whether the government has deemed your job uh, essential, which is a whole nother sermon. But we go forth confident that God is still sovereign and that he will carry us through these current challenges.